In business, you rarely hear the expression for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and, and there's, a, there's a time frame there. Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to awaken180weightloss.com. Welcome to It's Personal, Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway. And I'm Cameron Conway. And this podcast is a very personal look at personal finance in Canada. Welcome to It's Personal, Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway, here with Cameron Conway. And today we're going to talk about the age-old question, does money make you happy? Yes. <laughs> or more specifically, does more money make you happy? Oh yeah, we got to fill a half hour of time, don't we? That's right. Well, and the counterpoint to that is, does the pursuit of money, i.e. working and all the things we have to do to get money, make you unhappy in the process? Sounds like a dark paradox we're starting off with today. Really Twilight Zone-ish. That's kind of dating me. That's very Black Mirror-ish of you. Well, let's start where this all began. Back in 2010, there was a very popular study. It essentially addressed money not buying happiness after $75,000. And it was done by a psychologist and an economist, which is a pretty cool combination. So what they had researched was if money played a part in people's emotional lives. And they were looking at things like, in the day-to-day, how is your quality of life? Are you happy? Are you unhappy? Are you stressed out? Are you sad? What's making your life either feel good, positive, or not very pleasant? And the second was, in more of a self-evaluation process, what were you thinking about your own life? So was that positive or was that negative? And the results of this study was that money did impact how people evaluated their lives. Essentially, if people had more money, they felt better about their lives. But while that feeling of goodwill increased with income, it actually stopped when they hit an annual salary of about $75,000 in 2010 dollars. And the study concluded, and I quote, low income is associated with both low life evaluation and low emotional well-being. And ironically, quote, high income buys life satisfaction, but not happiness. You could say the core of this was finding a person's kind of comfort zone between personal satisfaction and the income they're coming in. And like you said, a lot of these people, they kind of hit a threshold where they had enough money to be comfortable and to address a lot of the problems they had. But beyond that, it was kind of a diminishing return in terms of the effort 
or really what you would get if you put even more effort beyond the certain threshold you're already at. We kind of have this, well, really, we're kind of stuck in the 1980s for a way we look at a lot of these things. It's bigger, harder, better, faster, more money, more better, more of everything makes you happy. And things have ebbed and flowed, but I think we're kind of still stuck culturally in that mindset. Aside from the whole like postmodern philosophy and all the other kind of stuff going on that you don't really want to hear about in a personal finance podcast, but it's just this thought of we are stuck thinking that the grass is always greener. If I had another $5, I could have the greenest grass and that would bring me personal fulfillment and joy. And this study kind of started to pull the curtain back, so to say, on that mindset and it's kind of helped us lead into where we are today with that great, great resignation, work from home, and a lot of other things of, is this income actually make my life better? Yes. And while that shaped a lot of people's thoughts for the better part of a decade, there have been more recent studies that have come out that have actually expanded on this and offered some more insight. The first I'd like to talk about comes from Harvard Business School, and it was a study that tracked 522 participants. It essentially had them write in a diary for about 30 days and track how they were feeling. So how did your day go? What was your emotional response to different things that happened? And they were looking at people with all different ranges of income. So from as low as $10,000 to as high as $150,000 or even more. And what they found was that um, the participants in the study, they seem to experience the same number of stressful events, which I thought was pretty interesting because you've got quite a wide range of people here in very different circumstances in life. Obviously, someone making $10,000 a year is going to be in a different economic status than someone making 150000 or more, but they were still experiencing the same level of frustration. What changed, though, as a result of this frustration was how intensely stressed out they were in their ability to solve these problems. So essentially, the study found that people that had less money were less able to quickly throw money at the problem and resolve it versus someone who had a little bit more money that maybe just wanted the problem to go away and had the means to do so. So they spent less time worrying. They had that less intense stress reaction. And as a result, they felt like they had greater control over their lives, even though the circumstances, of course, will have been different. So the conclusion of that study was a higher income did lead to a higher life satisfaction. Uh, generally, they were able to resolve their problems more quickly, and that was a direct result of having more money. Well, but part of this, though, it's just talking about solving a problem and relieving a stress. So you're essentially, you're trying to trade time and stress in order to undo the effects of a different kind of stress. That doesn't really talk into this about personal well-being and personal satisfaction, quality of life. It's just, I have enough money to kick around that I can solve this problem faster than someone else with less income. Well, there's still a lot of the same problems going on. And at times it could be less, it could be more. Like I just saw a study from the States a couple of days ago where it talked about how 33% of people who make over $250,000 a year are living paycheck to paycheck. So on the one hand, you can use this extra funds to solve problems, but the other hand, you can also 
get yourself into more problems, either through overspending, trying to keep up when you shouldn't, trying to have this appearance of wealth, or you just find yourself maxing out at a higher income bracket than you were before. You could have had a low income bracket, max out your credit cards, max out your debts, got some money either through a better job, inheritance, then you go through the exact same cycle all over again, where you're just re-maxing out at your new limits now. It's the whole curse of the lottery winner playing over again, where huge influx of money, but something like 90 or not, I think it's closer to 95% of people end up worse off in the long run because they didn't change as a person. They just had more disposable income to try and solve these problems. But really they found themselves making the exact same bad choices and having the exact same problems before, except there's a couple extra zeros at the end of those problems. Yeah. So I guess the difference with these studies would be is that it was a measure of reported income. There was another one that came out from the University of Pennsylvania's uh, Wharton School. And essentially, the author of this um, this study, who was part of the university there, he actually had an app created. And he had over 33,000 people that were employed from the ages of 18 to 65 use their phone, their smartphone, to check in on their emotions through the day. And essentially, he did find a positive correlation by tracking reported happiness and tracking reported income that uh, life satisfaction and experienced well-being was showing to be higher with a higher income. Now, here's where this all takes a turn. If money increases happiness, and if we've now got two reputable studies from well-established universities saying that this is in fact the case, so different sources saying the same thing, is the pursuit of that money actually contributing to our unhappiness? So the flip side, the effort that you have to put in to get that money, is it worth it? Is that detracting from your happiness? Is it detracting from your health? Is it detracting from your time with your family? or from other areas of life where you could experience maybe those those positive life satisfactions and feelings of well-being that were studied. So maybe there's a little bit more to this story than just that clear correlation. Yeah, you're getting inside of philosophy with your budgeting today. That's right. And um, add to that, like to your lottery point, money management is key no matter what income level you're at, right? Especially if there's a windfall situation. But I digress. Well, yeah. And I like this one quote. I, I, it's one of these quotes I've heard a bunch of times. I don't know where it actually comes from. Money can't buy happiness, but it can make you comfortable along the way. And this is kind of boiling down to what we're kind of trying to talk about is is the pursuit for having more money than everyone else actually beneficial to you as a person? That's right. And StatsCan looked at this a number of years ago, and they were looking at the question of what is a person's main source of stress? And, you know, based on a lot of surveys that you hear, you'd think money would top the charts. People say money is one of the leading causes of trouble in relationships and things like that. But what StatsCan found was that work was actually the main source of stress for the people that had responded to their survey at 62%, and finances was only the main source of stress for about the 12% of the respondents. So again, that shows you that maybe 
the stress is coming from the source of the thing that's supposed to make us happy. It's that kind of catch-22 thing going on where you have to put up with work in order to get the money that you think you need to be happy. So a lot of people will push harder and harder. And like I said, it's that 1980s mentality that it seems to be waning now, but it's still pretty heavily ingrained from the top down that if to succeed, you must push yourself harder than every single other person and you will be rewarded for it with a high paying job and heart attack. Well, it's that overtime culture, right? Where they would evaluate butts and seats and who's at the office the soonest in the morning and who leaves the latest at the end of the day. And maybe that's not looking at the things that really move the needle for these businesses, like productivity or the actual value. I mean, we've all heard stories and you probably know people too that make a career of just showing up and do God knows what throughout the day and then clock out at the end of the day. But have been there for a decade or, or more and uh, have made a career of basically just showing their face at the water cooler. We call it the Barney Stinson. But, but seriously, though, we can kind of look at how this has affected other places. Like Japan has kind of always been the poster child for this kind of culture. But you can see even there, though, the foundations are cracking. The culture of futility is taking over and they're trying to find a way out of it now. And really, we are marching towards the same issue up here in Canada and also in the States. But at the same time, there's this growing movement to be more focused on a balance between work and your personal life and that your time isn't just an endless dredge to get a paycheck where someone's just giving you the least amount they possibly can to justify you being there to accomplish productivity. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, the way that we measure what matters to an employer has started to change. And I think the pandemic was a big part of that, right? It changed a lot of the reality from things that people were talking about in theory, like work from home, or even the concept of the four-day work week that um, you know, people maybe wouldn't want to touch before. And we've realized now that people do value that flexibility of time and they value autonomy, the ability to choose, the ability to make their own decisions, to plan their day, to have some control and to have some structure themselves, right? So that it's not just the hi, here I am uh, in this very expensive office building. Look at my work in terms of the results. What have I actually created? What have I actually inputted? And there's a bit of a change in thinking where now to be a more valuable employee, rather than just clocking in and doing the busy work, your thinking really has to change around looking at things like what makes you more promotable? Are, is the tasks that you're doing, are they just busy work? Or do they actually contribute to the bottom line? Or to something that'll move the needle for the business that you're a part of? And can you accomplish that if the cameras are off in less time? or in a more efficient manner than perhaps you had at the office where what's that old saying that goes, the work expands to fill the time allotted to it. So maybe when people have more control and have more time on their own, they also have the ability to find their own niche or their own way to be productive. And like I said, if as an employee, you can find out what is actually valuable or what is actually promotable or what will actually 
either help you on a skills or in your career, career path or with your current employer to move to the next level, then that is an initiative that could be worth your while. And of course, hopefully, as these tasks become more familiar and more comfortable, they can reduce your stress instead of increasing it. Yeah, reducing stress really is a big part of it. Whether you're doing a physical job or a uh, technical job or a more mental job, your brain can only handle so much processing power done throughout the day. Like, there's been lots of studies done on this, even books like uh, Deep Work by Cal Newport and others. It just, you can only do so much for so long and remain productive. Otherwise, you kind of hit the place where it's just a diminishing return, no matter how hard you try and push through it. Like I'm saying this not just some like now I work in an office, but I also spent eight years at the post office, working ten hours a day, getting paid for five and a half for five days a week. And there are breaking points mentally and physically, and I think we tend to downplay it, mostly because of fear of getting fired or suspended. But then we're kind of back in that dark paradox again of I work to be happy, but I'm unhappy because I work. Well, and there's more documentation coming out now about stress and how the stress of overworking impacts us. I mean, the American Heart Association has done some studies where people under 50 have a higher risk of stroke if they've been working over 10 hours a day for a decade or more. So there are negative consequences. There is a dark side to all of this, but the counter point the counter side like Cameron was saying is it's kind of built in our culture now where people expect the long hours and then you have to include your commute on top of that but they expect you to be always available they expect you to work quickly to take on the extra workload for people that might have been laid off due to quote-unquote downsizing and I mean there's overwhelm really from workload from work volume from work flow and from the need to be constantly present 24 Four seven, none of that builds in the time for relaxation that is part of natural human function. I mean, there's there's good stress. There's good stress that you need to be productive, but then you hit a certain point where it starts to break down, right? And if it goes into exhaustion, it can create illness. It can create other negative symptoms and negative consequences in your life. And if you've ever spoken to someone that's dealt with burnout, it can take years to recover and get to the point where productivity resembles something even close to what it had been before the event occurred. Yeah, and I want to make it clear, this isn't like an anti-work monologue. Work is good. There's something ingrained in us to be helpful, to be productive, to contribute, to create, and all that is good. It's just making sure we can do it in a way that is fulfilling and can pay the bills. I don't think just everyone sitting on the beach every single day, no matter what, is the solution. It's finding a way where we can actually balance things out properly. So I know there's kind of the two sides that just constantly pull. It's the work nonstop to be successful. And then it's, I want to be successful without work, but the very bulk of us tend to live in the middle of this where we want to work, we want to help, we want to contribute, we want to do better for our families, but at the same time, we don't want to sacrifice our own lives to do it. Yeah, and I, I mean, I've heard before, humans are very much goal-seeking organisms, right? We function best when we have something productive that we're working towards that we feel like we can accomplish. 
Yeah. And sometimes just that little bit of stress or motivation is helpful. Like I want to accomplish this. I want to do this, but it just seems to get pushed to the extreme in our culture now. And so you're always set at a level 10 stress motivation level when you're physically not designed to handle that without breaking. That's right. There's something called the, I'm going to say it wrong, uh, the Yerkes-Dodson law, which is essentially just that. It says we need a certain amount of stress to function at our best, but beyond that, performance falls off. So it's determining in our own personal lives and in the work culture that we're in, because I mean, we do have control over where we work. We have control over who we work for, if we work for ourselves, if we work for someone else. There is an element of choice that is always going to be present in this equation. So part of, I guess, all of this is just evaluating if you're in the right space and if you're in the right scenario where you can manage these things and take back some of that control more effectively. But the point is that prolonged long hours do not increase productivity. And there have been another a number of, of studies that have come out, and this is, seems to be something that people are looking into more proactively these days about what is actually beneficial for people. So I, I'm a history buff. I did a, a bunch of history classes when I went through uh, grad school. And I found this kind of pertinent to what we're talking about today with our uh, five to six day a week, 10 hour days, thinking that, that we're so much better off. Uh, did you actually know that in the 14th century in England that the uh, serfs, so like the, the peasant farmers, they only worked about 150 days a year. So a lot of these people grinding and forced themselves are actually worse off in terms of a work-life balance than people were in the 14th century. Well, and in our modern society, I mean, we all have this this five-day, 40-hour work week, or most of us do in terms of kind of what's viewed as being standard. Which really hasn't changed since the tail end of the Industrial Revolution. Well, I was going to say that came from Ford, right? When he was paying his employees kind of above, I think it was like three times um, what the average worker would make elsewhere at the time. And then he went from six days a week to five days a week. But then it kind of just stuck. And it hasn't really changed since then. And no one, well, I mean, until recently has been looking at this and saying, why five days? Why, what is this model based on other than maybe that's what made sense for his industry at that period of time. But things have become increasingly technological and have become increasingly advanced. So maybe it's less of a labor input and there's more AI and things like that that are leaving the charge. Well, yeah, because people, they need breaks, they need rest. I remember uh, during the French Revolution, when they brought in the metric system, they tried going all in. So they tried to change from like a seven-day week to a 10-day week with a work cycle built around it. And not just the people, but the animals themselves too kind of couldn't do it and they couldn't keep up with it. So went back to the old seven-day cycle with at least the Sunday off with the breaks. But it kind of shows that you can't just treat a person like a mindless automaton machine, that there needs to be this balance. There's needs to be breaks where you are home and you're not just at home looking at your phone, checking your work emails. 
Well, yeah, and think about what people do when they're feeling stressed at work, right? They cut out their lunches, they cut out their breaks, they take it home with them. And that actually, over time, it makes the problem worse. It perpetuates this. So in our pursuit for happiness, which we're viewing as our pursuit for money in this particular context, you're actually giving up your life. You're giving up hours, you're giving up time, and you're giving up that leisure that your body needs. I um, I read in a book, uh, Is Your Work Killing You? by uh, by David Poston, where he was essentially saying, so he's a doctor, and he was essentially writing this book because he'd seen so many people that have work-related illnesses, so illnesses that would not have happened if they had not been living under the levels of stress that they had been living under compounded over a number of years. And he was saying that people essentially need different periods of time for breaks, breaks throughout the day, breaks throughout the week, and then breaks throughout the year, which is what we call our vacation. And that if there isn't that cycle, then things kind of start to fall apart. And even during the workday, he was using this analogy, I don't know if it's his or not, but kind of like a hockey player where they exert a great amount of energy in these bursts, but then they've got some time on the bench. So they're sitting there and they've got a period built in to rest, to regroup, to recuperate, to let someone else take that lead for that next shift before they're back on again. So what does make people happy? I mean, there have been some studies done globally. The World Economic Forum is one that for years now, they've been evaluating countries and saying, okay, what's the happiest country in the world? And what makes them the happiest country in the world? And Finland, I mean, they've been rated as the happiest country in the world for five years in a row now. And if you look at kind of their own, uh, their own writing, I found uh, a newspaper, uh, the Helsinki Times, that they were basically saying, oh, look at us, we won again, this is great. Uh, I wonder why. And in their own words, they were saying, well, you know what, we're in this beautiful landscape of nature, we have a really laid back way of life, low crime, high standard of living, a great educational system, uh, universal health care, all of that as well. And it kind of came down to good societal support, good interpersonal support, and a great work-life balance where people, even if they were paying a lot of taxes, were still saying, you know what, I'm pretty happy. And these reports were essentially, which were, uh, I believe they were Gallup polls done. And like I said, on a global level, they were looking at things like how positively affected people were. So measures of happiness, they had three different things that they were looking at negatively affected. They were looking at social support, freedom. So how readily people felt they could make their own life choices, how they felt about their governments and the level of corruption and things like that how generous they were to other people in need or charitably inclined. They also looked at GDP and life expectancy and healthy life expectancy. So all of these things, it seems like a bunch of random data points, but it's trying to build a more complete picture of a person other than just here I am at work, here I am at home. There's a lot more. There's society as a whole. There's how it's structured. There's if we feel that that net will catch us if we fall or not. Well, yeah, exactly. It's a different way of looking at it. Um, there's this one quote from Mr. Burns I like when I kind of look at a lot of this stuff. 
family, religion, friends. These are the three demons you must crush if you want to succeed in business. But this is the mentality that a lot of people still have. It it is changing. Like I said, a lot of these Scandinavian countries, they have the balance done a lot better. And they have these benefits of being pretty close to the top always of these happiness indexes. And Canada is usually right behind those ones. We're in a good place here overall. Things can always be better. But it also comes down to our choices and how we want to do this. Because like we said from the beginning, it's why would a personal finance podcast want to dig into all this stuff? Well, it's one thing for you to have a 10 or 50% growth in your investments, but what are you going to do with it? And what did that cost you in terms of your life and your family and everything else? Or why put in all this work to gather in all of these riches and seg funds and gold and what have you, if it's just going to go to someone else who will squander it, not do anything? Or again, just asking yourself, why am I doing this? Why am I putting in all this work and what is the benefit beyond just being able to say I can retire at 65? And just kind of doubling back, talking about more of the balance, we are seeing a lot more countries playing with the four-day workweek idea. Uh, you got Belgium is going through a test right now. Uh, England and Scotland are about to do their own test. They're a little different. Uh, England is going to do uh, four nine-and-a-half-hour days, where Scotland is just going to do a 20% reduction in weekly work without a pay cut. Uh, Spain is getting ready to test a similar thing. And Germany is probably going to go a little bit further. Well, they're already about 34 hours a week on average, but they're calling for a straight four-day. So you see a lot more of these industrialized countries playing with this idea to give people really the option to work more for the same amount of pay and see if their lives are better by the end of it. Yeah, and there's even some more uh, data out there. I mean, the uh, the World Economic Forum recently met in uh, Davos, Switzerland this past May, so just literally weeks ago here, and uh, that was one of the topics that came up quite a bit, this four-day model, and they had some quotes coming out of that that I thought were pretty interesting as well. Even in Japan, there were some Microsoft offices that had tested a four-day work week in uh, as far back as 2019, and they had reported not only happier staff, but also a 40% boost in productivity. Now, that really speaks to employees' ability to be innovative and to say, okay, you know what, I've got these goals because I'm, I'm a goal-driven person. I want to make sure I'm accomplishing what I have to do, but I'm going to be here for less time. So maybe rather than checking my phone 15 times a day or staring out the window, I'm going to use my time at work being productive. There was also a four-day model that was being tested by uh, countries like the United Arab Emirates. And essentially what they had done is they'd moved their public sector workers to a four-day, so it was a a four-and-a-half-day work week. But essentially, they were gathering data on this, and they found that 70% of their employees were saying that they were being more efficient, prioritizing, and managing their time better during the week. They also noted a 55% reduction in absenteeism, which is huge for any employer out there. So less sick days, less people not wanting to be there and kind of calling off. And 71% of employees that participated in this in the public sector were saying that they were 
spending more time with their families, which again speaks to that work-life balance. So not only are we working differently, but maybe there are models out there that hopefully, if enough tests are run, can become a matter of policy. In many ways, this is sort of the 80-20 principle being played out in real life. Uh, Richard Koch did a book about this and a bunch of people have talked about it. It's essentially that you do 80% of your productivity in 20% of your time. This kind of plays more with your brain's ability cognitively to keep up and be at maximum performance so that you can essentially get more done in less time when you're not overly taxing yourself all the time. Because really, it's the idea that you can get more done and less because you're more rested, there's less cognitive load on you. If it's more physical job, there's less of a physical load on you. Like I said, I've been on both sides. I've had very physical jobs. I've also had very mental jobs. And you can only hit that 100% threshold for so long. Like with, like again, with my, my graduate degree, I did my master's thesis in six weeks. I could do that for six weeks be at that level and still get my A plus, but I couldn't do that for six months. And I think this is something that's becoming more accepted, that it's these opportunities to be super focused and super productive and then rest, super focused, super productive and rest. And the idea is that you will be happier and better off as a person because of it. So let's let's try and come full circle here. Does money make you happier or does the pursuit of money make you unhappy? I think that's something that we each have to address individually. And I think if we're talking about a personal finance podcast here, I mean, the amount of money you make obviously is going to to tie into all your plans for the future. But I mean, in my experience doing what I do, I've seen everything from people saying to me, I want to make sure that I have more than enough, no matter what life throws my way, I'm going to squirrel it all away forever, work, work, work. And I've had people say to me, what is the absolute bare minimum that I need to have saved so that I can retire as soon as possible and get out of the rat race? So you really do have that full spectrum. And I think part of this, what makes you happy, it's not just about money. So we're balancing money work and stress. And it's coming to your own conclusion and essentially saying, are you in the right job? Are you in the right industry? Are you in that right career that gives you control over your time and over your output that gives you the balance that you need with your family? But also what stresses you out more? Are you more concerned when you have money worries because you don't have enough money? Or are you in a worse state when you have too much work and too much stress? And is there a way through career development to kind of maximize that sweet spot for yourself where you're making enough money that you feel comfortable and you feel content and happy with your life, but you're earning a high enough wage or a higher enough hourly rate that it's not as taxing? So, I mean, hopefully, of course, we would love to see changes to the work week and things like that come down the pike. But for the time being, We can only control what we can control. So that's really what we're encouraging you to do today, to make that call for yourself. What makes you happy? Is it the money? Is it the job? Is it the pursuit? Is it having goals? Or is it even having goals that are separate from your work? Because we all do have lives outside of work. So um, that's, that's important too. And we have family outside of work as well. And if you want a little less stress in your life when it comes to money, we can help. 
that's kind of what we base our careers and our jobs on is to kind of help you walk through all these things in terms of like the hard numbers, but also having like these deeper talks about you and your family and how you can do what you can to take care of these people that you love. And we try to do it in a very holistic way where we sit down, we actually talk to you and find out what you need, what your goals are and how we can really help you achieve those ideas and those thoughts and to take some of that stress off of your life. And as we try to do it in the best way we can, and we're trying to follow the same model, like even now, like we're sticking with a modified work from home schedule so that our employees can benefit from these things. We're not trying to be the ones who are just cracking the whip and force in the back. It's we're trying to live out these things ourselves in a way that we can both have the best performing and the happiest employees while also being able to take care of you and your families at the exact same time so that we can come out better in terms of us personally and financially. And really, that's that's what it's all about. So financial advice, financial inv- advising is all about sharing the load, like Cam was saying, and, and trying to remove some of that stress from you and giving it to someone or to professionals that do this all day, every day kind of thing. So if you're in the BC area and you want to chat, feel free to look us up at brawnfinancial.com. You can give us a call or shoot us an email. We'd be happy to talk. And uh, until then... We wish you well, take care, and all the best. In business, you rarely hear the expression, for life. You make a purchase for a product, for a service, and and there's there's a time frame there. Well, that's not the case with Awaken 180 weight loss. Allow me to explain. You know, a year ago, I started with Awaken 180 weight loss and had incredible success losing weight. But you can lose all the weight in the world and not keep it off. And what good is it? That's why I have support for life from Awaken 180. Yeah. I mean, I go back for check-ins and make sure everything's going smoothly. But if I ever had a problem, the counselors are there to get me back on track. Why don't you do what I did and call for a consultation? 844-346-1800. 844-346-1800. Or go to awaken180weightloss.com.